Hello and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I am your host, Kate Jacobson, and joining me over the phone from the great city of Regina, Saskatchewan is Professor Mark Spooner. Mark recently wrote an opinion piece in the Calgary Herald titled Why Performance-Based Funding for Universities is Not the Answer and authored a piece for the Canadian Association of University Teachers Assessing Performance-Based Funding in Higher Education. Mark, thank you so much for joining me here on Team Advantage. Well, good morning. So Jason Kenney's UCP government here in Alberta recently announced some significant changes to post-secondary funding. Uh, specifically, the new funding model links 40% of an institution's funding to the fulfillment of performance measures. These are things like graduate employment rate, uh, median graduate income, sponsored research revenues, enrollment targets, and so on. So this performance-based funding model follows a similar model that was introduced in Ontario in 2019 by Doug Ford's Progressive conservative government. Uh, Mark, on the face of it, the idea of funding being linked to certain goals and expectations, you know, doesn't sound particularly scandalous. Could you explain to our listeners that are unfamiliar with the issue, what are the major differences between this new performance-based funding model and the system that existed before? Uh, Sure. I think the first thing to uh, take into account when we're looking at both the Ontario model under Ford and now the Alberta model under Jason Kenney is that these are actually just cloaked funding cuts. But they're worse than just a straight-up funding cut. The, the problem is now they're bringing in this half-baked, poorly thought-out performance indicator model that, again, not only results in a funding a cut to universities, but also now starts to distort the job that they're set out to do. What are universities supposed to, the role that they function in society that they're supposed to be fulfilling is now getting distorted by these half-baked, poorly thought out indicators that will inevitably lead to the harm of of the ability for universities to do their job, which is uh, they have many jobs. One of them is to serve the marketplace, but they're also there to provide students with the opportunity to become well-rounded citizens who can participate in a knowledge economy, who can be critical, creative consumers and uh, thinkers. And again, like I said, uh, participants in, in a modern democracy. So, in in my view, look, if the government wants to make funding cuts, if that's the mandate and that's what the people want or will tolerate, then just make the cut. But don't go harming the university at the same time with these. Like I said, they're very poorly thought out. And even the government itself says that they want to implement these in April and they don't even know which indicators they're going to use other than listing, you know, I've, I've heard up to 15 different indicators that they may be using. Mm-hmm. So how is it that these performance metrics are chosen and by focusing on things like you know, employment rate, graduate earnings, research revenues, what kind of values is our government saying that post-secondary institutions should internalize and what is being excluded from these types of performance metrics? Sure. I think uh, the first thing that we can see is that there's in both cases, Ontario and Alberta, there's a very heavy emphasis on labor market outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, you know, employment indicators, median income, both of which are poor indicators for a university. One, universities don't control the labor market. And governments are very poor predictors of uh, future labor market needs. So you're really shooting yourself in the foot by having these indicators 
Um, I like to, to joke that, ironically, this is the more red tape, less student choice policy. <laughs> um, because what ends up happening is, uh, one, you're actually adding layers and layers of red tape in terms of the funding model. We're talking about um, this is a costly program to administer, both on the university side They'll have to hire people to gather this data and ensure that they're trying to meet their targets. And on the government side, this is the whole department of people who will be now pouring over these poorly chosen indicators to see where universities stand. Uh, so there's the red tape part. But then you get the less student choice part. So one, these initiatives ultimately harm students in many ways. Uh, one they're coupled with a raising of tuition. Then there's, they're, they're actually lead to less choice because as universities conform to the labor market outcomes, you know, as they conform to those indicators, um, they start to maybe put less emphasis on new innovative programs that may lead to jobs that may not lead to jobs that exist yet. So students are actually faced with less choice. And then there's the prospect that in the long run, People who study, sometimes the humanities get knocked because they don't lead to a direct job immediately. But in the long run, they actually often make as much or more money in, in the long term. And the people who work in those jobs usually report being happier, more fulfilled. So, so you get a, a kind of confluence of things that, that actually harm students, and that's on the student side of things. When we look at society in general, uh, when you start focusing on things like um, sponsored research as an indicator, that kind of thing limits uh, the innovative side of universities who can do all kinds of groundbreaking work in risky, ambiguous, non-conventional places that ultimately lead to the the ground, you know, the real game changers. And and that's not even to mention lots of research doesn't even require funding. What they require is a well-resourced library. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think about, too, when I think about kind of like median income levels is that obviously a really major predictor of income levels are things like gender and race and your parents' income levels, which incentivizes in some ways universities to select for students that will have higher income levels post-graduation, which I think is really sinister. Sure. I, I completely agree. That, that's why these indicators are are dangerous and uh, harmful to both students and society, because they really distort what it is a university ought to do. And and governments really don't fully understand, you know, in terms of how they bandy about accountability. They they, they don't seem to me they don't understand that universities are are already one of the most accountable places in terms of the public sector. If you look, uh, programs are reviewed every five to seven years. Professors individually are reviewed every time they teach a class by a whole set of students who anonymously review them. Then they're also reviewed by anonymous peers throughout the world who have no skin in the game. Believe me, they're they're not afraid to tell you if you've made a mistake or to critique your work. Um, so, so you get this other level of scrutiny that few jobs other than professors have. And, and that's not to mention the regular reviews that happen at the departmental level. Uh, sort of we go through this annual information forms that we have to fill out where our work is reviewed by 
department chairs or their equivalent. And then at the um, associate dean's level, there's often a peer review committee. And then a dean uh, ultimately reviews that work. So uh, to, to say that we're not accountable already is very misleading. Not to mention the fact that universities want to attract students. They want to offer innovative programs that students want. They want to offer the best the student experience that they can provide because um, we're all sort of caught up in a game of academic capitalism where we want to attract the most and best students uh, possible. So uh, universities are already you know, reacting to these markets to add this other layer of government scrutiny and government control is kind of ironic. I don't know if people uh, realize this, but in this former uh, USSR, lots of uh, industry targets were set by the government. And so you'd have nail factories where if the targets were set in uh, weight, they would produce their biggest nails. If the target was set in volume, they would produce their smallest nails. But all of that led to the overproduction of some uh, items and the underproduction of other needed items because of the overly enforced control from the central government, which is, uh, I find quite ironic that the Jason Kenney's government would mimic. Mm -hmm. So in general, who stands to benefit from performance-based funding and who ends up losing out? Well, I'd say everyone is ultimately the loser. One, corporations don't get the workers of the future that they need to be at the forefront of their fields and and the the fields that don't even exist today but need to be filled tomorrow don't have the skill set of the students with the skill set that they need to fulfill those jobs. So the workplace loses out. Governments make cloaked cuts to the universities and hide them through these performance-based indicators. They ultimately lose out because they're not going to have the effect that they hope. And students lose out because they get less choice. They pay more tuition and there's more red tape. Society loses out because uh, we're not doing the innovative work that we could be doing because we're focusing on the conventional to meet the targets of these new performance indicators. And then the the other part is you create this sort of Hunger Games version where I'm now in competition with my fellow colleagues and my fellow you know scholars at different universities within the province. So I'm going to be less likely to collaborate with them because any gains they make are losses that I suffer. <laughs> so you create a competitive model rather than a collaborative one, which is what's really important if we're talking about developing new knowledge, new knowledges, new approaches, new innovations, new processes even to, to, to market. So you mentioned this before, but some academic fields like the humanities, social sciences, the arts don't necessarily have large industries that they feed their graduates into. The goal for graduates in a lot of these fields is to, you know, equip them with critical thinking and problem solving skills that allow them to tackle complex social problems. We are in an age of unparalleled income inequality and looming climate crisis. And things are going to have to, in my opinion, change quite drastically. They're going to get better. How valuable do you think these skills from the humanities and social sciences are in tackling the big problems that our society faces? And how do you think performance-based metrics are going to impact those fields? Well, you hit the nail on the head. Um, 
skills like problem solving, communication, interpersonal skills, critical thinking, these are vital to our very survival, uh, both economically and environmentally. And and what these metrics, as I've seen them with their heavy emphasis on the current labor market and focusing on things like median income, uh, really distort the kinds of graduates we want to be producing, the kinds of uh, higher education learning experiences we want to offer. And another piece that sometimes gets lost is that when you keep a university off off kilter, when when they're off balance by not knowing how much money they're going to get in the next three years, let's say, or or in the long term, what happens is they're they're going to shy away from doing risky but innovative programs, offering things that um, maybe don't have uh, immediate demand, but will meet future job requirements that. Uh, the government can't even anticipate yet. And and you've seen this already. Uh, there was a, a good article uh, actually in McLean's recently that talked about the oil and gas engineers, uh, the the focus on, on, on oil and gas engineers produced a bunch of people who are now out of work. Uh, that's a skill set that they focused on looking at current labor market needs instead of future market needs. Mm-hmm. So pivoting a little bit, to the quality of academic work. Uh, I know that it tends to come kind of from an evaluation through these peer-reviewed processes, not necessarily through a popular vote or through a salary comparison. What do these performance measures mean for academics who work in post-secondary and how their research might be encouraged or on the flip side, discouraged? Yeah, I think that's a great question. What we've seen from looking at, uh, there's about 30 years of data now from across the world where these failed experiments have, have happened. Um, depending on what's emphasized, in this case, when I look at the Alberta government's um, policy announcement for this, they, it seems like they're going to focus on sponsored research. Uh, what sponsored research often leaves out is... Uh, um, non-traditional research, unconventional research, indigenous research, community-engaged research. Um, and depending, again, on, on how it's emphasized and how it uh, it plays out, it will disadvantage certain groups. For instance, in New Zealand, um, they had a big category that they wanted international work. But uh, indigenous people, indigenous women tended to do local community work. And so their work was disadvantaged, and that leads all the way out throughout one's career. You're not going to get um, the same rewards for doing that kind of work, which means you're not going to get tenure as quickly. You're not going to get uh, perhaps different uh, pay bonuses, and you're not going to get that work's just not going to get valued. Uh, again, it, depending on how the indicators are used, the distortions will manifest themselves in different ways. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about Ontario, but have performance-based models for post-secondary education been implemented in other jurisdictions? And how did performance-based measures impact the quality of post-secondary education in those jurisdictions? Sure. I think the the classic example is the United Kingdom, where it's probably the longest-running national performance-based funding program started in 1986, and it's still going. We're, now it's called the Research Excellence Framework, 
which essentially has distorted and changed their entire system where people are only hired if they're, there's even a term for it, refable, like REF, refable, um, because the institution, in order to survive the, with like each different uh, unit or department within that institution in order to su- survive and succeed under that REF program, the Research Excellence Framework, they need to hit certain targets. And, and so often it's looking at how much funding you got, where did you publish, is it a top-tier journal, uh, how many times did you publish in those journals, which tends to concentrate people in the conventional because it's too risky to take a flyer on a on a a new wacky idea, let's say, because it might not get published. And if it doesn't get published, your unit could then get defunded. The other thing uh, that happens if you look at these over time is that as the indicators of the metrics get gamed, because they inevitably get gamed. So um, each institution is going to try to look as best they can to fulfill the mandate of those metrics. And so they're going to game their research to sort of in in an education example would be teaching to the test. Yeah. Right? You're going to teach the test and ignore most of the curriculum, only what's measured on the test. And that's what happens at the institutional level. So then the government responds by adding more metrics. So you get this uh, vicious cycle of just adding more and more metrics, and the thing gets more and more bloated and costly as it gets unwieldy to administer. So in the UK example, they now have the teaching excellence framework. I kid you not, because they found that they instituted the research excellence framework and everyone kind of shifted their attention to only focus on research, ignoring teaching. So then they found, oh boy, we better do something now because the metrics are distorting the university experience to such a degree that teaching's been uh, overlooked. And so now they've come up with more metrics and they have the teaching excellence framework to try to balance this out, to balance out the distortion which becomes unwieldy and costly. And and all of this is based on well-founded research. One of the things is called Campbell's Law. Another name for it is Goodhart's Law. Basically, the more an indicator becomes a target, the more it'll distort that which it's set out to measure. And and we've seen this. You know, there's terrible examples over time. You can look at the, you know, even the, to, to, at the risk of getting sensational here, um, the body count and the Vietnam War was a direct example of the key performance indicators going awry because uh, McNamara instituted that they would just count bodies to see who's winning. Mm -hmm. And you can see how that could, so it didn't matter what bodies. And so you can see the civilian deaths and and the ultimate carnage that that caused. Um, And that's how uh, forceful and sort of evil these metrics can get depending on which ones you're focusing on, they will become the target that people will then react to because that's what they're being asked to do. And speaking of research, the research that results in groundbreaking discoveries or insights does often tend to come from unexpected places. So people testing new hypotheses, combining methods of inquiry that haven't been tried before, thinking outside the box, so to speak. Does performance-based funding increase or decrease the likelihood of these kinds of discoveries occurring in our universities and colleges? By far, it decreases them. And that, again, is Born out in the research, if you look at the UK, where people tend to focus on the conventional, so uh, they want to hit the target. So they're going to start to essentially only look for research that can 
count in the performance evaluations, that count in those metrics that the government sets out. And so that's another piece where you start to do, you start to research on what counts instead of what matters. And that's especially true in terms of the university's role to serve the communities in which they reside. You tend to ignore important community-based research that can do all kinds of harm reduction, that can raise the quality of life for everybody. Uh, There's all kinds of interesting and important research that happens that doesn't necessarily lead to funded research or research that gets translated into a journal article. Often you might change uh, how a community views a nutritional issue or that you might raise how many people are getting vaccinated, how many people are going to a needle exchange. How is, you know, there's all kinds of questions that don't often lead to a journal article, but lead to important changes in practices within communities. All of those get downplayed. The other aspect is, of course, that there's all kinds of innovations happen from labs that aren't well-funded that were from the library. As I said, for many of us, the library is our lab. And mm-hmm. and they lead to all kinds of ways of changing how we view the world. And you, you can really see that too in terms of when catastrophe happens. For instance, after 9-11, all of a sudden you saw universities scrambling. Who, where are, are people who understand the Middle East? Where are those scientists, political scientists who understand that kind of diplomacy and and understand how others view and interact with the world. Um, These are things that you can't foresee. So the the universities that maintained those language departments and those departments that had foreign studies, those were key to helping us better understand and better work through a peaceful interaction in the world. Mm -hmm. So politicians and policymakers often like to argue that universities and colleges should basically simply serve labor market needs. This hasn't worked out particularly well in Calgary, where a lot of geoscience and petroleum engineers are now out of work thanks to a global downturn in oil prices. Do you think it's wise for universities and colleges to link their graduate output based on the global price Uh, of a volatile commodity, not to mention the necessary phase-out of fossil fuels that will have to occur over the next decade. No, it's it's clearly, clearly not the way to go. It's, um, as you've just pointed out, and and that McLean's article had pointed that out too, that um, when when you focus on current labor market needs, you're going to lose out because, as I've said, governments are poor, predictors of future labor market needs. And, you know, we know this. This isn't like it's coming out of nowhere. There was a 2017 report by the expert panel on youth employment that highlighted that the shift away from manufacturing to service and knowledge economies means that there's going to be a greater need and emphasis on soft skills, like the ones I've listed before, you know, problem solving, communication, interpersonal skills, creative thinking. These are things that universities really excel at. And and now you're kind of distorting and preventing them from doing what they're really good at and getting them to focus on this narrowly applied uh, labor market indicators and outcomes. It's a, It's a terrible plan. It's clearly half-baked. They don't even know which indicators they're going to use, and they're going to roll it out by April. Where would we ever tolerate that anywhere else in society? Mm-hmm. 
So if any of our listeners are justifiably concerned about these changes to post-secondary education, what are some initial steps that they can take to get more informed on the issue and start to organize or take action? Well, I I think, number one, always uh, governments do respond to pressure and especially parental pressure. Uh, They seem to listen to parents uh, much more than they do to the scholars in the field. So uh, parents have a lot of power in order to help sway the government. In the very least, they should slow down. This arbitrary date of April 1st, I'm not sure, other than it seems like an appropriate date given it's uh, April Fool's. Um, Other than that, it it seems like an arbitrarily set date. They should slow down and give it more thought. There's no point in rushing out and creating a system that's going to wreak havoc over a world-leading institution you know, a world-leading uh, province and higher, the post-secondary education in Alberta is world-leading. And why you'd want to damage the University of Alberta, University of Calgary's groundbreaking work and, and the important service that they provide to the community and to society is beyond me. There there are metrics that people can focus on, you know, you could, which universities are already looking at, but um, things like how many faculty are not paid to do research, how much of the money is going to student services. There was one metric that the government did bandy about that I do agree with, and that's looking at um, traditionally underrepresented groups, so first-generation students, students with disabilities. That that kind of thing is probably an important place that they could be looking at. But But let's not kid ourselves. Institutions are already looking at that. Institutions are looking to do the best job they can to serve society. Um, so and, and like I said, they're all in the business of trying to attract new students and different students. So they, they want to do that work. I think a better approach when you're asking the government is to work with each institution to develop a plan that's unique to that institution and that respects the communities in which that university serves and resides. There there are much better ways than this stick approach. You know, there's no carrot. It's all stick to punishing universities who don't live up to this distorted view that the government has set out for what they ought to be doing. And in the end, we'll all pay. Universities will stop being world-class as the Canadian universities are, and the universities in Alberta in particular. Um, students will get less choice and be able to be less prepared to compete in the future economies that are upon us or about on the horizon. Um, they're being asked to shoulder more and more of the debt to service uh, to, to, in order to go to university, they're, they're being more and more of it is being put on their shoulders, which means that they can participate less and less well in the economy. Um, they're not able to buy houses. Everything's delayed because of their uh, the enormous debt load that they're graduating with. Um, yeah, I would say to get informed, put pressure on your MLAs, write to the government. Don't take their sort of half-baked ideas of what accountability means or the the way that they position universities to be and to get organized. I, I think that there's, there is still time to try to reverse this. And at least, it, you know, it, it's a lesser of two evils. Just ask for the cut, but let them leave the the heart and soul of the university unscathed by these deleterious metrics that will harm everybody.
Another thing I'd like to add here is that I know that the unions for support staff for most major post-secondary institutions in Alberta are going into bargaining at some point this year. And that is a really good opportunity to put on the table things that would be able to protect the university and protect the people who work there, both academic and non-academic staff. And it is going to be, as we have seen through these performance measures being introduced by this government, an incredibly tough round of bargaining. And I think that the unions that represent post-secondary support staff need to be prepared to fight incredibly hard at the bargaining table. I, I completely agree with you. I think that um, another great irony is it's the faculty associations, the faculty unions, who are increasingly the defenders of the aspirational ideals of the university. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's kind of an ironic twist that it, it's left to faculty to fight for it in their uh, contractual agreements with the university and ultimately with the government uh, to be able to do the job to preserve things like academic freedom, to preserve the ability to to serve society in the best way that they're set out to do. Um, so it it will take solidarity amongst the faculty associations. I think. Um, even the administrations of each of those universities, each of those institutions, in their in their mind, know that these are these are bad ideas, and I'd I'd love to see university presidents stand up to the government and call out the BS. They should call out because they know there's a, reams and reams of research that show how these have failed in most jurisdictions where these have been rolled out. They've led to all kinds of unintended and unwanted consequences. Mm-hmm. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. If our listeners want to follow you and your work, where should they look? Sure. I love having followers on Twitter. I love speaking to people and interacting with people who agree or disagree. And my Twitter handle, as they say, is just DR, Dr. Mark, M-A-R-C, Spooner. So, at, so it's just at Dr. Mark Spooner. And uh, that's a great place to follow along with things that I'm working on and uh, other news that I like to retweet and and have people be aware of uh, changes to post-secondary education. Perfect. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks.